What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, coronavirus in the White House, how the president and the West Wing are faring and what their response means for the rest of the country. The question is about messaging. If you're telling the country not to worry, we've got this and we'll take care of you. That's a difficult message if you're not gonna respect this virus. I hope everyone recovers. Southwest Airlines CEO says with or without a government bailout, he'll preserve his company and his employees. We need to do everything we can to save every single job. We've never had a furlough in our history. And thousands of independent restaurants across the country lobbying Congress for relief. Restaurateur Marcus Samuelson. We just wanna go back to work. That's all we want to do. Those stories plus getting lost in a black hole. The singularity and nothing escapes. Gravity somehow even escapes light. It's Tuesday, October 6th, 2020. Squawk Pot begins right now. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC this morning. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin along with Joe Kernan and Kelly Evans. Becky is off today. I'm going to pass it over to Kelly. Thanks for joining us this morning. And you've got the news on President Trump. Do. And I was just going to say before we get to that, Joe, Joe, we we were just joking about, you know, you and me, we could banter and, and I, we were in studio and then Andrew wasn't. And now now, you know, we're all on. Well, no, you're in studio still. I'm still here. I've been here since April. So and, and I like it here. It was, <laughs> you have. Anyway, it's uh, great to be here with you guys. Let's get to the news this morning. Andrew just mentioned uh, President Trump returned to the White House last night from Walter Reed Medical Center. And Eamon Javers is standing by with more on his message to America about the coronavirus. Eamon, we heard plenty from the president. Yeah, we absolutely did, Kelly. And it was really striking and dramatic scenes yesterday as we saw the president walking out of Walter Reed under his own power, which was a good sign. The president dressed in a suit and tie, uh, walking to Marine One uh, and taking off for the short flight from uh, Walter Reed down to the White House. Once he arrived at the White House, we saw this dramatic moment where the president actually walked up the steps to the White House balcony and then stood and, and posed for pictures at the top of the balcony, allowing Americans to see that he's standing on his own two feet. He appears uh, to be fine, although doctors say uh, he's not out of the woods just yet. They say he's going to have his fifth dose of remdesivir at the White House today, and he's going to be monitored by White House physicians. They have a top-notch medical team at the White House. All of that will be happening over the next uh, five days or so. They say it won't be until Monday uh, that they'll be able to breathe that final sigh of relief, as they call it. So uh, something to watch there. The president uh, recording a short video uh, saying that Americans shouldn't be afraid of the coronavirus, that he has seen it and he understands it and he doesn't want it to dominate Americans' lives. And one thing that's for certain, don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. Meanwhile, 
How is all of this affecting the presidential campaign? Well, we put a poll in the field on Friday night. This was right after the president was admitted to Walter Reed. Uh, we, we started polling Americans in battleground states. This is between October 2nd and October 4th, so a couple days uh, in the wake of the president's hospitaliza hospitalization to get a sense of how this is all impacting it. Here's the headline number. If you look at the support for the two candidates in these battleground states, 50% Biden, 45% Donald Trump. So that's a, a substantial lead there for Joe Biden in these battleground states. It's smaller than his lead nationally, which is about 10 points in our polling, five points in the battleground states that are going to be the hardest fought. Take a look at serious concerns about COVID. Those are jumping higher, up to 72% now by October 3rd. And you see that spike up uh, since September 3rd. Uh, that's an interesting uh, bit of movement there because it's not what the president necessarily would want ahead of the election. And then in terms of who's taking more appropriate personal precautions, uh, this is overwhelmingly Joe Biden, 75 percent Biden, 39 percent Trump. So as you look at this, what you're seeing is a race where Joe Biden is consolidating a lead uh, in the wake of the president's hospitalization and in the wake of that debate last week. Uh, we'll see whether there are other events over the next month here that in the final stretch can change the calculus. Uh, the president's going to hope that he can do that by displaying strength and recovery from the virus. And then we're going to see that vice presidential debate on Wednesday night. So a lot more still to come. There's still some time here for the president, but the trend line uh, is not where the president's people would like it to be right now. Guys, back over to you. Eamon, we've been focused a lot on the president's personal health for obvious reasons, but there are so many people in his inner orbit that now have come down with the coronavirus. You know, what does that mean in the final weeks of this campaign when people like Hope Hicks, when the press secretary, when I'm sure other sort of trusted confidants aren't around? Look, I mean, the stark reality, Kelly, is that the president returned last night to a White House that is a hot zone for the coronavirus. The first lady has been in isolation inside the White House residence with the coronavirus. The president infected, returned to the White House yesterday. First thing he did was take off his mask and pose for pictures at the top of the balcony. The residence uh, is clearly an area where the coronavirus uh, is active. The, the West Wing is also an area where the coronavirus is active. We saw the press secretary and a number of press aides uh, testing positive for the coronavirus just over the past 24 hours or so. A, a number of staffers, uh, we're told, inside the White House staff in terms of valets and, and housekeepers and, and those sorts of employees have also tested positive for the coronavirus. It is going to be an enormous challenge to get the virus out of the White House. That's something that the president's going to have to focus on in the days and weeks to come. It's a big, daunting challenge because the White House is not a place that you can just evacuate and quarantine. Uh, but that's the reality of the situation right now. It's going to mean the president's going to have uh, depleted manpower as he moves forward here toward the tail end of this campaign. And, and can, can you speak to, his, to what his advisors are telling him about messaging about how he articulates this message, both of strength that you're talking about, but obviously he made this comment in his in his tweet last night to say, you know, don't let uh, don't let COVID dominate your life. Um, a lot of people looked at that statement and said it dominated 210,000 people's lives who died, and how how he right. will speak about the disease going forward. Look, the, the jarring thing here is that the president received world-class health care, right? He had a team of physicians. You could see the battalion of physicians in the white coats at Walter Reed who were treating him. He had his own suite of uh, rooms 
at Walter Reed. He had access to experimental medicine uh, that most Americans could never get. I mean, this president uh, is not the average case here in terms of the coronavirus. That said, what he's telling Americans is, don't worry about this thing. Uh, it's not, it shouldn't be something to dominate your life. There's a risk, yes, but uh, it'll be fine. We'll see how that plays on the campaign trail. What the polling shows here uh, is that the, the election is moving away from the president, not toward him. Uh, and one of the things that is not clear going forward is exactly who his advisors are going to be. Uh, we don't know who he's going to be able to talk to. Certainly physically, it's going to be very limited at the White House. They're telling us that only a very few aides are going to be able to have physical face-to-face -face, uh, conversations with the president, and those are going to, be have to have to be under very strict PPE, mask-wearing uh, scenarios. So physically, he'll be limited. On the phone, how much energy will he have uh, to be reaching out and talking to various uh, people who can advise him on all of this? That's not clear over the days and weeks to come, although the president is saying he's back and, and he's feeling good and says he's feel, he feels as good as he's felt in 20 years. So hopefully he can uh, reach out to a wider uh, array of advisors, but there is that sense that he is in, in a bubble as any president is normally, and now that bubble is a lot smaller than so, it would Amen, otherwise be because of the virus. The remdesivir and the dexamethasone are, are standard care. So uh, he did get that. I, I'm, I'm hoping the Regeneron drug is as, as great as, you know, we had Len Schleifer on yesterday. And obviously that, that was the one uh, therapeutic that he got that the normal person couldn't get. But that's the only one. Remdesivir right. and dexamethasone are, are standards of care. And one of the reasons why the mortality rate, we've gotten a much better handle in the last three or four months, five months on the mortality rate, and that's gone down. As far as the age-old question from, uh, from people on one side that worry about the, the damage to the economy and what that does to people's lives, and the other side that point to that horrific uh, number of, of 210,000, but you know, 20 to 49-year-olds, 99.98 survival. Um, 50 to 69, yep. 99.5. And, and it, it, you go over 70, you get to 94.6. A lot of comorbidities there, a lot of things that, uh, that, that, that play into that. So in terms right. of, of all the businesses that are going to be permanently gone, all the jobs permanently lost, all the lives permanently affected, it's going to be an argument that we have, not an argument, but it's going to be two sides of, of how we approach this that's going to go on and on and on. And no one's going to get beyond that, that 200,000 uh, number. I mean, there have been calamities in the past, uh, obviously, that are in the 40s and 50,000s. 1969, there was a, a horrific flu, and we had Woodstock uh, at the time. And no one's ever going to going to minimize the 200,000. But the, the people that are on right. the other side of that argument about don't fear it are the ones that are worried about really lasting economic damage for where we didn't isolate the older people that were vulnerable uh, and, and that the 99.98 crowd, 20 to 49, they're locked in their house. They're, they're unable to, to earn a living. They're, you know, they're, they have economic insecurity and depression and alcoholism and drugs, and they're not getting elective surgery. So, I mean, you can see the, look, the, what the point is. Yeah, look, it's a, you're absolutely right, Joe. It is a horrific uh, and cruel trade-off to even start to think about 
you know, at what level of death are you willing to accept in order to have economic activity in the country? What level of death is worth rescuing, you know, the American theater industry or the American restaurant industry or the or cruise line industry or, or all these industries that have been oh, oh, and the so, people so that are affected by not devastated. just the industries, but the people that work right. in the industry and that depend on that for for a livelihood and it, uh, not to mention just and. and being shut in and, and every, that's a moral and ethical as well as economic and political decision and there's so many components to it uh, but you're absolutely right that's the trade-off that the country faces and, and there are no clear answers here uh, and we don't have a really clear uh, decision from leadership about where this is going to be we're getting a lot of mixed messaging on how this country should proceed and I think this election is going to be about two very different approaches right the president uh, who's infected with coronavirus and who in his first big image at the top of the balcony takes off his mask uh, versus a vice president who yesterday in the NBC town hall uh, touted mask wearing as patriotic. Right. Well, there's no uh, one you know, around. Those are the two, right. those are two no visions here. There's Joe, no one up there with him, right? Joe, I mean, it's just, yeah. Joe, it's a question of but, messaging. But, but, Joe, though, but, right? but then it's he immediately... It's a symbolic thing. What I was going to say, I was going to make two points. One is he immediately then walked inside without his mask on as well. But... The, the issue about the trade-off is this can be done, but it can be done responsibly. And the question is, I think, as Eamon said, is about messaging. If you're telling the country not to let it dominate your life, effectively to say not to worry, we've got this and we'll take care of you, that's a difficult message if you're not going to respect this virus. Because ultimately, if you get into a situation where New York City takes their masks off, which is which is what he would have entertained uh, probably a week up to a week ago and would have suggested you would have had a lot more people back in the hospital. And if you had too many people back in the hospital, you wouldn't be able to get that treatment. Yes, today it's spectacular where we are in this country in terms of being able to get remdesivir. And, and but that's only because we don't we don't have tens of thousands of people who are walking into the hospital. And, we're, and he was also able to get tested immediately and get into the hospital very, very early, uh, irrespective of the fact that some of these drugs are available to others, um, it, but, but of course not Regeneron. The issue is that he was able to get there. Most Americans can't. And so I think that there's a question about what that messaging looks like. You know my view on this. I think that we, there are trade-offs, and I think that we should all get back to business, but we can get back to business and do it in a responsible way, and that means lots of testing, and that means wearing masks. That is not what the president has historically advocated. I don't know if he's, you know, at this point he may not be the biggest mask advocate, but he's, you know, he's not saying don't wear masks. I don't think anyone in the administration is. I don't know what happens in the West Wing either. I, I hope everyone recovers uh, that, that, that we've talked about. I hope all the senators recover. I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, we, we, we've seen certain hot spots and because we've opened up with some professional sports and things like that. And the, the outcomes so far have been relatively positive. I think you'd have to concede most of the, the places where we've seen it at universities or, or even in Major League Baseball, wherever you've seen it, you know, the teams are, were, they take off for a couple of weeks, they're back. They're, the, 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 the uh, crisis passes in a lot of these. And it's, it, it, it is obviously much more, the mortality rate is much higher than, 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 a, than a horrible flu. There's no doubt. But it's not, you know, when we're talking about him with Secret Service agents and PPE and masks with the plexiglass shield, I mean, it's not Ebola that we're talking about here. It's not bubonic plague. And, and no one wants to transmit it to anyone else. But 
you know, I, I just I understand what he's saying. We're 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 talking about it's not manageable, and 200,000 is not manageable. But I don't know whether you want to impact people's lives that are young people's lives forever, uh, based on not just protecting the, the more vulnerable. Amen. Joe, if I could just add a thought here. Uh, one is, I mean, I, I, first of all, you're you're right, but I don't think we should minimize no, the, the sheer terror for the I, young I people I, who have. It, uh, who, who have gotten this, right, in terms of the heart implications, the neurological well, implications, okay, the permanent right. lung scarring. We don't really know what the long-term effects are for those who, who survive a rough case of this. The second is, in terms of the West Wing, you know, so the sports arenas and other things, they've been able to deal with this largely by evacuating, clearing out, uh, having everybody isolate, uh, and, and cleaning all the surfaces and whatnot. It's not really something you can do in the West Wing or in the White House residence. First of all, they're very cramped you know, quarters there. The hallways are narrow, the offices are tiny, there's a lot of people crowded into a tight space. Right now they're having a lot of people work from home, but there are certain things uh, in terms of classified activity, in terms of the situation room, that just have to be staffed at the White House. So they can't empty it, you know, fumigate it, let it sit for two weeks, and bring everybody back into a pristine work environment. Uh, they are going to have to manage this as they're still working there. And I think because of the nature of the physical space and the nature of the, the elite and classified work that happens there, that's going to be a real challenge to, to impact to the eradicate the virus out of this West Wing altogether. I'm just hoping everyone, uh, my point is just I, th I hope everyone recovers. I, I, between now and recovery, yeah. obviously, I don't know how they get any work done or how they campaign, right. and it, it's all framed differently because of the upcoming election, but that's right. secondary uh, right. as, as well. To but the, but to the, the issue, but Joe, the whole issue is about modeling. It's about modeling. The White House is not doing, White House up until yesterday wasn't doing contact tracing. So we, we, when you talk about you, these other places, these other sports leagues are actually doing so, so many other institutions around America are doing so much more than the White House ever did. Let's try not to make this political. I don't know about, I love science Nobel Prizes, it, still. I still love the science Nobel Prizes. Yesterday it was for hepatitis C with medicine. Today it's for physics, and it has to do with black holes. Um, it was awarded to a trio of scientists from the UK, Germany, and the US uh, for discovery about, uh, about it. We want, I, don't want, I want to just quickly tell you who it was. And it won a British scientist, Roger Penrose. Uh, Reinhard Genzel is German, but he's at Berkeley. So he's here at the Max Planck Institute. Uh, at Cal Berkeley, and um, Andrea, I don't know how to say her, her last name, but G-H-E-Z at the University of, of California, UCLA. And um, black holes are, although they, they, they are the stuff of, you know, so much science fiction and legend, and I, you know, the singularity, and nothing escapes, even though, the, even though uh, photons and, and light rays, the duality of light, there's no uh, there's gravity, they're, 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 they aren't actually mass, but gravity somehow even escapes light, Kelly, from escaping. So figure that out. You and know, light is both a wave I'm, and I'm, a particle. <laughs> and you can go in a black hole and, say, and come I'm, out. I'm with you. I, you like that stuff? No, I like wait till the, we get, wait till I we like get fusion. One. I like the hep C one. I, I thought that yesterday was Amazing. so awesome with all of the awful stuff going on in the world. Let's not forget, you know, and what Gillian's done with that treatment and everything Did else. Did you hear what so, I said? No. Uh, and then we'll uh, get there, there was a time, and you know, I know I'm old, but we used to talk about non-A, non-B hepatitis on this show, on Squawk Box, because they didn't know what it was. And it, they named it hepatitis C, discovered it, and basically cured it all in the amount of time that this show's been on. So that's why you get a Nobel Prize.
Anyway, but it's we amazing. digress. I love yeah. it. Coming up on Squawk Pod, CEO of Southwest Airlines Gary Kelly is making plans to save his airline with or without more government support. We're not just trying to cut costs, we're also trying to play offense here and generate more revenue. We're back after this. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along with Joe Kernan and Kelly Evans, who's in for Becky today. Southwest Airlines is asking its unions to accept pay cuts for the first time. The goal? To avoid furloughs and layoffs as the airline industry waits for word on additional pandemic relief from Washington. After the industry received $25 billion in federal aid earlier this year, Airlines were barred from eliminating any jobs until October 1st. Those were the terms. That date has come and gone, and demand for air travel due to the public health crisis of the coronavirus is still shockingly low, compared to a year ago down something like 70%. So bleeding cash, major airlines like American and United cut thousands of positions just last week. Southwest has never laid off employees. The airline's CEO, Gary Kelly, has seen his pay cut since March and announced yesterday he will be forgoing any salary through the end of this year. Here's Gary Kelly with Joe Kernan. Because you have decided you can no longer uh, assume that something will pass in terms of what uh, Speaker Pelosi and Mnuchin are talking about, so you're taking matters into your own hands, or that you would do this even if there is uh, a deal that comes uh, to fruition? Oh, it's only because the payroll support is expiring here, and uh, there's just no certainty that it will be extended through March. Um, you know, it, we're, we're, if we don't get the support, we're just going to have to borrow that much more money, and um, we just need to get from here to there. You know, I'm very, very confident that uh, we'll get past this pandemic. We'll be in a, a strong position to... Uh, not just survive, but thrive. But we've got to do everything that we can to conserve cash between now and then. And this is our largest uh, uh, single, lar largest uh, cost uh, opportunity that we have. And, um, you know, we've not asked our employees to take any pay cuts or do any furloughs, any layoffs in our history. So I, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that, once again, we can be different, uh, avoid furloughs, avoid layoffs, and, um, you know, cut pay rates, which I don't like to do, but it's a shared sacrifice. And this is the kind of company, you know, that I think uh, is up to that task. And you think that you could get approval from unions and from your employees. And, and what would it entail? Um, uh, describe the 10 percent in, in 2021. And then you can say that there won't be any layoffs or furloughs for the entire year. Well, what we're looking for is savings of at least a half a billion dollars a year. So it's real money uh, and very meaningful, and especially in the face of losing um, billions of dollars a quarter. So we, about 17% of our employees are non-contract. And with those folks, you know, I can guarantee them no layoffs through the end of next year. 
and will reduce pay, but it will snap back at the end of 2021. I feel very good about that. Uh, with the unions, we'll have to reach out, excuse me, to uh, uh, each one of the union representatives and go through a negotiation process. We can furlough employees uh, without negotiations, but uh, if we're going to make any other changes to the contract, that has to be negotiated. So we're starting that now in October because it will take some time uh, to, to work through that process, and that's why I've targeted January 1st to have cost savings initiatives in place. So um, we'll just have to see. And, uh, you know, obviously any reasonable person realizes that this is a, a huge crisis for not just uh, the airlines, but for the country. And we need to do everything that we can to make sure that we save Southwest Airlines here uh, is our number one priority. But second is job security. Uh, we need to do everything we can to save every single job. And I'm proud of the fact that we can do that. We're different than the other airlines. We've never had a furlough in our history. Uh, and we can, we can continue that streak here as long as we all work together. Gary, have you spoken to Congress or the administration since Friday? And, and can you tell us where things stand and, as far as what you know? Well, yeah, there's a lot of action uh, last week. And yet I've spoken to members of uh, the Senate, members of the House, members of the administration. Uh, and um, the good news is that there's very broad support for maintaining the essential service of the airlines and also maintaining the jobs uh, to support that service. Uh, the frustrating thing is we, we just can't get that legislation uh, passed. So I think I'm still uh, very hopeful based on what I hear that something will happen. But because of the long cycle here, we just can't wait uh, indefinitely. So we'll kick this off. I hate to put our employees through this only to find that the payroll support ultimately passes, but uh, that'll be a high quality problem if, if in fact it does. Right, exactly. Um, so still burning through about $17 million uh, a day. Can you, can you just tell us in terms of, I think the middle seats are open. Do you feel confident that even on a long haul, passengers are, are completely, um, so you're never completely safe, obviously, but you would have a high degree of confidence that someone could get on a New York to, to uh, or, or any type of long flight and, and not have to worry about the recirculated air or, or the, I don't know, tray tables, whatever it is that people worry about on planes. Yeah, I think the, you know, ba based on how the, 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 our knowledge about the science here continues to evolve, the, the primary risk is uh, vapors and uh, and less so about surfaces, but we've got very, uh, very stringent uh, cleaning protocols in place on the surfaces. And I think it's become very widely recognized that the air quality um, in, the, in the airplane cabin is superb uh, with the HEPA filtering and then the, uh, the, 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 fil the cycling of the air uh, every couple of minutes. So yes, I'm very confident about that. We're, uh, awaiting a study from Harvard uh, on that very topic uh, and that'll be key in us uh, continuing to either block the middle seat or begin to sell that. Obviously there is no path to profitability if we, if we block a third of our capacity. Uh, so at some point we've got to uh, make that change. But not until uh, we judge that it's safe and we're one of the four airlines in the whole world that aren't booking airplanes full, 
Uh, so we're definitely in a vast minority in that position. But I think it's the right position to do until we get uh, uh, a little bit better uh, a read on the science here. That's one revenue opportunity that we have. The other is just to continue to expand our route map and tap into new sources of revenue, i.e. new customers. So shortly we'll be adding Miami, we'll be adding Palm Springs, uh, Steamboat Springs, Colorado, uh, and we have a host of other cities that we're exploring. So we're not just trying to cut cost, we're also trying to play offense here and generate more revenue uh, so that we can uh, get that cash burn down to zero. You think business comes back, do, will people want to meet in, you know, I, I don't like Zoom, I, it makes me want to, you know, I, I stop listening after about a minute and a half. Uh, I mean, not, not, not our seminars here at CNBC, no, not those, but, but normally I start, I mean, do, do you think you're, you're going to get back to face-to-face uh, to, to -face meetings? Because that, that's a big part of, of, of the business travel, and some people think it's not coming back, Gary. Well, no one knows. And, um, you know, all, there, there's no reason to prejudge that right now. We're going to have to monitor uh, and adjust. And if business travel is less than it used to be, I think we're perfectly positioned uh, for that because we're uh, very efficient and low cost and have a very egalitarian product uh, that we offer. Um, my own personal view is that, yes, business travel will recover, but it may be Five years, Joe, it could be 10 years. So we're going to have to be prepared for a long recovery period here. All right. Well, at least for me, I wish you a lot of luck, uh, Gary. And I, I, I think it's Thank really you, important that the whole industry uh, is there when, when this is all said and done. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Next on Squawk Pod, millions of Americans work for independent restaurants in neighborhoods across the country. Chef Marcus Samuelson says 85% of restaurants are in danger of closing without federal relief. It's going to take an incredible task to build the restaurant industry back, right? It's, we're not out of the woods just because we're going to get this built fast. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. You're listening to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Kelly Evans. Here's Joe. Kelly, I just I, I want to just mention this one more time. Andrea Ghez, uh, you're excited about this. Only the fourth woman to win the Nobel Prize in physics. And you know who the first one was. That's amazing to me. No, Madame, you, you, Madame you said Curie. Marie Curie, right? Ma She's yep. Only Madame the Curie. fourth. That's unbelievable. It's exciting, but the it's black great. hole, this is really cool if you look into it, because it, it, after Einstein postulated the general theory of re relativity, it, it mandated black holes, but he didn't really believe in, in them, 
because they sound so crazy. Anyway, 10 I, years later, 65, Roger Penrose said they do exist and wrote the, form, the, the definitive paper on it. And he won one of the notes. 1965, that's what he's getting this for, for work done way back, uh, way back well, then. I mean, you, you still have to be alive, right? So, like, thank God. You know, I think you do. I think you're right. That, and I don't it think always you seems get a little unfair to me. Yeah, right. Doesn't right. that seem a little unfair? It's like, shouldn't you be able to just get it for something like black holes, no matter if you're anyway? Pandemic forcing restaurants and fast food chains to change the way uh, they do business. Kate Rogers joins us now with more. How so, Kate? Hey, Joe, good morning. Well, we've seen delivery and pizza players like Papa John's and Domino's really take off during this time. But other restaurants are leaning into carry out and drive through concepts as consumer preferences continue to shift. Starbucks is opening both smaller to go stores and more stores with drive throughs in suburban areas over the next 12 to 18 months. Chipotle's had its Chipotle lanes for about two, year, two years now for digital order pickups. And by 2021, its CFO projects that 70% of its new locations are going to have a lane. This summer, Burger King revealed its smaller format stores that have drive-in options, pickup lockers, and curbside delivery. Taco Bell also has a smaller mobile store with parking spots for contactless curbside pickup and a lane to prioritize those who order ahead by the app. And finally, Shake Shack is also working on its Shack Track stores with drive-through lanes and carry-out windows. Now, so many of these concepts had really focused on dining-in options as well as carry-out, but in August, when more restaurants were reopened, drive-through visits actually represented 37% of all restaurant visits, according to the NPD group. And off-premise remains really popular as concerns and restrictions regarding on-premise, of course, remain. Back over to you, Joe. Favorite in my house, uh, Kate Domino's, just always, and they reinvented a lot of the stuff. Great, different pizza, it's good, a lot of stuff. Uh, is that why the stock is up? It's up over the past six months. What will uh, we expect to hear tomorrow? I think they report. They do, Joe. And so they had really strong same-store sales last quarter of about 16% growth. We're expecting that to likely continue. They also have some new menu items. I don't know if you've tried them out yet. They introduced a revamped wings. We'll see how those do. And also the CEO, Rich Allison, said that consumers were spending more when they visited, perhaps for leftovers. So that's another trend we'll be keeping an eye on. And they actually got an ultimate pepperoni. And, and I realize <laughs> there's no, there's no, there can't be too much pepperoni. It's weird. If it's thin enough, you know what I mean? And it gets nice and crispy. And it, it, there can't be maybe there could, I guess, if, if it was like that thick. Totally. Or I actually but. agree with you. I think that's a great point. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's, it's hard to believe people would agree with me. I, mean, I, I, I appreciate that, Kate, that you do, because I was serious, but most time people just roll their eyes. But anyway, thank you uh, for You're the welcome. comedy. All right, Kelly. Kelly, you don't always roll your eyes. Sometimes. And I disagree. You don't like no, the candy I, too but much? but I pick pep the pepperonis off. I pick, them, I pick them off. I can't. Yep, yep. The husband gets to eat them, so it's a win-win. Uh, but yeah, no, exactly. Can't. He's like, bring it on. Yeah, he's like, pass it over. I can see that. <laughs> there, <go. laughs> all, right. Uh, all right, let's stay on uh, track with the restaurant industry here. They are said to lose $240 billion this year because of COVID. For a closer look at the push for federal aid for the industry, let's welcome in our next guest. Chef and restaurateur Marcus Samuelson is a founding member of the Independent Restaurant Coalition. They're lobbying Congress for virus relief. Uh, it's great to have you here with us this morning. And you, I mean, Thank you've got you. some really scary numbers about how many restaurants could close uh, if there's not. And, and what do you got? Would you want another round of PPP? Uh, is that kind of the main way to support the restaurant industry? What, what are your expectations at this point? Well, first of all, when you think about it, right, 
um, you talked about fast casual and fast food and, and, and places like that. When you think about the word restaurant, you have to think about independent restaurants are about 16, 11 to 16 million people in this country work in independent restaurants. And our worlds look vastly different than um, big box restaurants. They really do, right? So it is interesting to listen to the conversation that we're in the toughest time in the restaurant histories ever been in this country. And uh, one side of the business is thriving and the other side of the business. And also the side of the business, I think that when you think about neighborhoods, when you think about the heart and soul of uh, not only New York City and, and San Francisco and places like that, but American cities, restaurants, independent restaurants is what makes sort of the heart and soul of those neighborhoods. Because when restaurants yeah. are gone, so goes retails, the rest of retails. No, I, Marcus, I don't think any of us need convincing. I mean, it, it's yeah. obvious when you look around any town and you talk to people who are struggling to stay in it. So you're kind of drawing this contrast between the way that some chains like Domino's or Chipotle mm -hmm. or, you know, are thriving while the mom and pops are struggling with all sorts of crazy rules, not, not crazy, but just difficult to apply a broad standard to and figure out, you know, how to plan for the months ahead and restrictions on indoor dining. And they're kind of and not a lot of capital to come up with a solution. You can't just launch an app like everybody else is doing. Yeah. So you guys want the restaurant act to pass, right? I mean, it's in the heroes. Act. Yeah. I don't know if it's in, I guess we have to wait and see what's in the bill that might come from Pelosi and Mnuchin, right? Well, it's the most important thing that can happen for us as, as a community of 16 million um, restaurant workers. Uh, it has to pass. Um, you know, uh, this is the difference whether 70 or 80 percent of those 16 million people is going to go on unemployment versus being able to hire back 60, 70 percent uh, or hiring back instead. So we definitely, not just for the survival of, of the employees, but also the owners and the institutions uh, is, are really at stake here. If we don't get this bill passed, um, I don't know what's going to happen to independent restaurants. And our, and our neighbors and our community will look very, very different. And it's going to take, even with this, it's going to take an incredible task to build the restaurant industry back, right? It's, we're not out of the woods just because we're going to get this bill passed. Um, and it's not so much about getting this bill passed in terms of we want, we want another loan. We just want to go back to work. That's all we want to do. You know, it's a known fact that restaurateurs put 90 to 95 percent of all the revenue come, that comes into the restaurant goes back into the restaurant. Right. So it's actually a very good investment for the government because it's going to go back to reemploy people. Uh, restaurant owners, uh, there is no exit plan. There is no <laughs> umbrella that that mm. uh, we're leaving. We're staying in it and uh, we, we just want to go back to work. Marcus, the, the, the question I would ask in terms of is, is how to make the money uh, the most productive it can possibly be and the most targeted it can possibly be, which is to, which is to ask a terrible question. I desperately want the restaurant industry to, to not only survive but thrive, but I worry that you know, this could be a 12 to 18 month project from here on in uh, before things could possibly get better, depending. We could hope maybe maybe on the more optimistic side, you could say six months in, things could get materially better, potentially if certain cities were to allow uh, more, uh, more, more indoor dining and the like. But the question then becomes, by default, we're going to be employing people who are ultimately not working in the moment. And so the question is, is there a different way to target them in terms of those employees to provide them with funds but does it necessarily need to come through the restaurant because they're not going to be working? And how, how would you work that? 
Well, I mean, we're that battle has already been dealt with, right? Like, you know, if you go back and look at how other countries dealt with it, they actually dealt with it through the government, right? But since we decided a long time ago that small businesses would deal with this, so we can't actually retract that right now. You know what I mean? We would have said, you know, eight, nine months ago that the government will actually take care of this and we're not going to go with buy through the small businesses, then that's a pass that we could have taken. That's a pass that other countries have taken, France, Sweden, etc. right? But our pass has always been that we're going we're gonna to manage this through small businesses and through restaurants. So it's actually not a pass that we can now exit out of because that would be even more catastrophic. So that conversation uh, could have, you know, we could have argued that back in March or April when this was uh, dealt with, which, you know, America's picked this path of that we're going to have a small government as possible. Or it's about having the right size government as possible. And we're, we're, this is really the livelihood of about 11 to 15 million people that, uh, you know, makes up neighborhoods are a huge fabric of our community. So once we decided that we're going to pay it through the small restaurants, independent restaurants, we have to stick to that path. All right. Marcus, thank you so much for your time this morning, and we'll all await the fate of that bill and the whole industry. Marcus Samuelson. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 